Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Bye, 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 baby. I am bye, baby. Welcome to the Brown Baby Podcast. I'm your host, Nikesh Shukla. This is a podcast about parenting, how we raise our kids with joy and wonder in uncertain and, let's face it, increasingly bleak times. It's inspired by my memoir, Brown Baby, and each week I invite a fellow parent of brown babies be they writers or musicians or chefs or comedians or actors to talk about their parenting journeys and the highs and lows have experienced along the way i <clears throat> i want this to be a frank and funny and poignant look at parenting and hopefully it will spark honest and self-effacing conversations about how we tell our kids about the world we will talk about parenting fails plus the best and worst advice that we've ever received I'm hoping this is going to be the comforting, uh, the comforting, uplifting podcast for anyone who's ever found themselves searching for answers in a sleep-deprived Google hole. Step away from that Google hole. Do not go to that Google hole. This week's guest is the legendary writer Courtier Newland. More on him on a second. First, look, my memoir is coming out, Brown Baby. It's about parenting and it's about grief and it's about finding joy in bleak times. Kind of like this podcast. Here's what Bernardine Evaristo had to say about the book. And, you know, Bernardine Evaristo is a legend, by the way. Brown Baby is a beautifully intimate and soul-searching memoir. It speaks to the heart and the mind and bears witness to our turbulent times. Thanks, Bernie. Please do buy it from wherever you get your books. Links to where you can get it in the show notes. But if you have a preferred place, use that preferred place. I am not here to judge. I know lots of people are, like, sniffy about using... Certain sites that begin with A, and much as it's not my preferred way of buying stuff, and I will always try and support, I have no right to tell you where to buy your things. Okay, on to this week's guest, Courtier Newland. This is a real special one for me. He has been there my entire writing career, and you know, I was kind of nervous talking to him actually because this is probably the first time we've had a proper chat peer-to-peer whenever we've had chats before it's always been where he's kind of been like like someone I look up to you know and um this time we were sitting down talking writer to writers I <laughs> felt nervous amazingly I idolized him when I read the scholar in 20 
uh, when was it 2001 and I've read every single one of his books ever since and in 2004 he gave me my first start alongside Nia Yikwe Parks and Rajiv Balasubramanian by putting me in an anthology called Telltales which we talk about in the podcast he's the author of so many books but the one I want to draw your attention to is A River Called Time which just came out in January 2021 on Canongate it's an epic epic speculative sci-fi about an arc about humanity about social inequality is so big and moving and astonishing and the world that he creates is just immense and brilliant I, I can't wait for you to read it Corche also wrote on the small act series that Steve McQueen directed, especially Lover's Rock, which takes place at a house party and is one of the most beautiful and soulful and sexiest things I've seen in years. I'm looking forward uh, to hearing our chat where we talk about, you know, raising boys, uh, what it's like raising a mixed race kid who is um, black and Indian. And um, what else do we talk about? We talk about technology and we talk about... Uh, writing you know it's always going to come up when you're talking to other writers and we talk about what kind of parent he is and what you know his own childhood and how that kind of informed how he uh, parents now before we talk though my, my kids and I've been reading this book series that is a parody about the princess life uh, it's by Philippa Gregory that I, and my kids are obsessed with princesses okay you know they love princesses and the book is the book series is just you know it's it's like a pastiche it's like a spoof of the princess life and the one the volume that we're reading at the moment is really funny and it's it's basically about how a boy prince comes along and kind of usurps uh the the older princess and she gets annoyed and today a few days after reading about how this younger prince is going to become king and the older princess will just get married off and what the rules are for princesses compared to princes my daughters are outraged they're like six and three and the three-year-old said it's not fair that boys get to do what they want and girls don't and the oldest one was saying well why isn't she going to be the queen because she's the oldest it's just not fair and then she said if there was a boy uh if the the king and queen had twins a boy twin and a girl twin who would be who would be the king or queen and we were like well probably the boy sadly and she was outraged and they just don't like it and uh just because he's the, just because he's a boy and that's not how they want them they that's not how they want the world to be and it's brilliant to watch them form their rage against unfair systems in real time i mean we can take down the monarchy at a later date guys but all i can do is yes and what they're saying about feminism and their patriarchy and ensure that i never perpetuate what they're railing against but you know what this is exactly why i think representation matters in kids books because these kids are seeing a world that they do not like and they want to do something about it and that for me fills me with so much hope okay now for my interview with Corchia Newland all right okay. cool welcome to the podcast how are you doing I'm doing good I'm good man oh, good. happy oh good yeah it's been <laughs> like I, I, it must be such an incredible time for you at the moment we've just had uh both of your small axe films have been on now and yeah, it's less yeah. than a month till a river called time comes out um well obviously a river called time was supposed to come out in august of 2020 i think if i'm if i'm remembering it rightly and then it got it was and, yeah. and it got pushed to january because yeah. of covid i mean that book has yeah. been a long time in in the making so how does it feel for it to so nearly be out 
yeah yeah it's a massive massive relief uh to get it out there and also it's, it's just really nerve-wracking as well you know because after 18 years of saying oh i think this is good and trying to make it right and get it right and stuff i'm just like forensically looking at all the little details now of it and saying oh you know i'll make sure it's properly correct now so yeah it's, it's, it's great i'm so pleased yeah so pleased and and having spoken about wanting to move into writing sci-fi for so long and like finally doing this like big epic speculative fiction or is it time slip i i, I don't know to know what the whatever it is um yeah like it must feel like ah oh, it's like such a sense of relief as you said but yeah yes massive relief but also just i just didn't think it was going to be this one I thought it was going to be something else. I thought it was going to be a novel that I've been thinking about writing for a while. I was preparing myself to jump into. It was also sci-fi. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it turned out to be this one after all. So, yeah, it's, 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 this is the right one to start with, I feel. This is, like, definitely the one that sets my stall out. Uh, nothing would be as big as this. So I just think to start with the big one and then, you know, whatever else afterwards you've also been teasing a short story collection called cosmogramma for about a decade now as well when when (laughs) when's that one dropping i wasn't meant to be a tease i really wasn't meant to it was meant to drop every time i said it was (laughs) um i i uh that's coming out next year as well so i'm gonna have two books out in the same year and cosmogramma's coming out later in the year so yeah you guys get to read it at last and stuff and yeah yeah just um yeah, the, the novel was going to be one of those short stories expanded a bit. So uh, I'm really excited now that it gets the it gets aired in the proper way. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember I remember seeing seeing a talk you did once, and you talked a lot about the editing process and that being where you find the novel, and and actually the editing process for you can take longer than the actual writing of the novel. What is it about? the editing process that like how how do you remain so forensic when you've been looking at the same draft for for as long as you have because because i i find that after a while time off helps me but you know if i have to constantly relook at it i will i get complacent with it yeah yeah i mean i think that happens to me too i think that, that what what the gift is time really is, is just to be able to kind of take that step back and then relook at it take a step back and relook at it and that was one of the major things i think with uh with 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 river is that i had so much time away from it that when i came back to do the rest of it like parts two three and four it just all just gushed out of me it was like really it was literally like a river and it was just like just constant and i couldn't stop thinking about it and it's building and building so but i i feel i mean i'm getting to the saturation point with river i was just looking at it again this week actually and my eyes started to literally bleed (laughs) they were burning and everything so I'm not immune to that at all but I think it's just uh I do love the editing process more than I love the writing process and and that's never changed but why is that it does tend to be do you think I don't I think just fix everything you know like I always go into it like I write the first draft being like okay I know there's a ton of mistakes in here and then editing is like I can fix this I can make this better I can make this better and the mantra when I'm writing the first draft is you know you can fix yeah. this so don't worry yeah. don't look don't look back just get to the end you know so, I yeah. really hope all of my creative writing students are listening to this so they know it's not just <laughs> me who says that the first draft yeah, the yeah. first draft is just getting it from brain to page yeah. and every draft yeah. after that is trying to edit it so it, it matches what's in your brain yeah, exactly. And you know what the funny thing is about that is, is that the more you do the editing process, 
the better your first drafts tend yeah, to be. Yeah, yeah. So now I can do like like gospel according to Cain. Literally, that's it. That's how it came out. Like I, I very I didn't really touch it that much. We did edits and stuff, and we kind of honed everything, precision and stuff. But in terms of structure and character and all that stuff, all the scenes, it's pretty much the way it was in first draft. And you get to a point where every now and then, with a story or with a novel or something like that, that will happen. It'll just be like, okay, that's all right. I don't need to worry about that so much. And then something else, like River, you're like, ah, oh, no, I need to move things around yeah. and polish or whatever. Yeah. But uh, you know how to do both of those things. You know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like, obviously, this is the Brown Baby podcast. So I do want to move on to talking about uh, kids and, you know, both of us being dads and that. But I, I just want to kind of go back a little bit because I think one of the things that, one of the things that's sort of tripping me out about doing this podcast with you is like, I've, I owe a lot to like Telltale's Volume Two, which was the first time that I'd ever been published. And I think about you know that it's right here. It's like pride of place wow. on my on my <laughs> on my desk. It's right Amazing. there. Oh wow, well done. And it was like you know I was writing and I was trying to be a political rapper and I was you know not spending enough time on either of them, and then the the politics that was in the raps that sort of ended up in this short story and it kind of I really remember when when those those copies turned up and it was the, th- the thing that got me first was seeing the barcode on the back of the book because I <laughs> yeah. immediately thought this is legit it's got a barcode yeah, yeah. and then yeah, like yeah. seeing you know you've got a short story in there Romesh Gunasekra had a short story like Kamala Shamsi like all these amazing amazing people and I just sort of felt like I didn't feel like you were my peers, but I felt like my writing was good enough to be amongst yours. And that was a, that was a huge deal for me. And so I feel like my entire career I owe to that commission. Like I, I would not have had um, I wouldn't I wouldn't have had like the strength or like the like, it's almost like a feeling of permission to kind of carry on. But but so much more than that, because I think it also the work that went into the editing and the time I spent chatting to Rajiv and, and Nee who who were editing that volume and also like talking briefly to you about a couple of things I definitely definitely realized the value of like role models in your life like just kind of spending time with you and giving you the space to kind of be who you are and offering advice and offering support and that's kind of gone into the rest of my career in terms of mentoring um and and then that's why I, I do as much mentoring as I do because of you guys, because you guys were so like, that was such a seminal experience for me. And I, I wonder, I wonder if like that baton passing, if that had happened for you and that's how you then carried it forward and who your mentors were and who were the people who were basically spent spending that time with you, sitting down with young Courtier and going, look, you can do this. You just got to work hard and and be your own what your own like what well, i can't remember how neat put it like you got to be your own worst critic like you got to say all the stuff to yourself that you you wouldn't want anyone else to say and that will kind of force you to work harder exactly uh yeah no i mean i mean that exactly what happened you know i i i was mentored by a guy called barney platts mills who was a filmmaker um quite you know older than me uh lived in Lambert grove uh, he was uh, mentoring a lot of kids at the time. Uh, uh, Saloom NJ, was, he went on to become a, a filmmaker, you know, he's mentoring him. And he had this project called Massive Video, which was run out of uh, a youth centre called Seven Feathers in the middle of Sutton's Estate, you know, just at the back of North Pole Road. 
and he was involved in YCTV, uh, North Kensington uh, Film and Drama Projects. He was involved in those two uh, projects as well. And basically, he met my best friend, and he said to my best friend, uh, do you know anyone who wants to make a film? And my friend was like, no, but my mate's writing a book, and he's, you know, he's really good, and you should meet him. And so he said, yeah, okay, I'll meet him. And uh, I met him at um, St. Helens um church the youth center in the basement uh this is just down the road from grenfell actually and uh i met him there and gave him my you know three chapters of the scholar basically and he 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 took them and said okay i'll get back to you i was like you know if you if you take that and you do anything with it i'll see you (laughs) (laughs) and he goes and looked me up and down he's like yeah all right whatever (laughs) and then uh, about a week later he turned up at my house and he had a, a big uh, computer monitor, and he had a keyboard, and he had a hard drive, and they all had Ilya stamped all over them. <laughs> and, he, and he gave them to me, and he said, uh, you said you don't have a computer, so, so now you've got no excuses, just get on and write. And my mum was like behind me going, what does he want? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I don't know, mum. And then I just, yeah, took it upstairs, I was just, baffled he didn't even tell me he was coming he just like you know turned up at my door with this stuff and um i started writing and he took me through every step of the process basically i would take my pages to him and he would go through them with a big uh red marker and he would just be like you know this is when like during the writing process and afterwards just like no and if you move this word here that makes a cleaner sentence and you see what i'm doing here you see how i'm cutting that out and whatever we did that every day for about a year or so working on the scholar and then after that was done we did the edits and then after that was done he started trying to get put me in contact with uh agents and that's how i got signed by william morris was through barney as well and he never asked me for anything anything so i tried to pay him afterwards when i got my first advance i said he was like what are you doing that just put that away (laughs) it's crazy yeah Yeah, but but that to me just tells me everything about the type of community that should exist amongst writers and and it does i think you know, like you know i i, I guess one of the things that I, i've been doing a lot in the last five years is like you know talking about representation and publishing and all that kind of stuff and wearing that on my shoulders and like trying to do stuff like for all the mistakes i made along the way and and whatever like i was still fe- still felt like you know that thing that had been fostered for me so clearly before, like the only way to pay that back was to pay it forward. And I guess that's all you can do. And I guess that's what makes like really important, like role models in, in our lives and, and, and people that we kind of look up to as people who, who foster a community where you're not doing anything for the sake of your own ends. You're doing it to keep the community going. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing things for your own ends, as long as you think about other people too. I mean, we all have to eat. We've all got, you know, some of us have got kids to feed. Um, you, you, you've got aspirations for yourself. I don't think there's anything wrong with having aspirations for yourself. And I don't think there's anything wrong with those aspirations involving money and success. I mean, I'd like a big house at <laughs> some point in time in my life. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But as long as you, in tandem with that, you are also, yeah. you know, working with the community. You are giving back. You don't forget where you came from. I think that's very important. And, you know, I, I just, um, I feel like I was on the back end of a movement that had been happening in Labrick Grove and West London, Shepherd's Bush and all that, West London areas that had been going on since way back, way back of 
poor people and middle class people coming together to, to, to make things better in the community. And I was just lucky to be on the end, you know, in the 80s and stuff of that and be a recipient of that. And I was very much like, all right, so you're not going to take this money, yeah? But 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 I've got to do something with this because like, I was literally, you know, I would have been, I was wandering around the street like dirt boy, you know what I mean? And like, you know, not to see my mum looked after me and stuff, but she was, she was training to become a teacher. She just passed her teacher training. You know what I mean? She's like bringing up two boys by herself. She's doing the best she could. But at the same time, I wasn't ever in contact with the industry that I'm in contact with now in any way. And he opened the door and he showed me that that was possible. And he never once said to me, you can't. He never once, you know? So I was like, okay, that's what I can do. That's what I can give to people. Ha, ha. How did it feel? How did it feel to archive those times in in West London in in Small Axe for you? Uh, yeah, just beautiful, beautiful man. I mean, it meant so much to me, and everyone could see. I think, I think, I was one of the only writers in the room who came from West London in that way. So everyone could see how how massively how much it meant to me, you know, like, and, and I've, I've spoken with some of the other writers and they've, they've mentioned that. It was such a huge deal for me. Um, not even in the weight of responsibility or burden of representation way, just the, like, oh, my God, this is good. I know how people are going to feel about this, you know. And little things like in Lover's Rock, you know, the guy with the white cross. That's, that's what we're able to do, you know. We're able to do things like that because it's us, you know. And that came from Steve, you know. Steve said to me, there was this guy in West London who used to carry a white cross. I'm like, I know that guy. I know who you're talking about. So the fact that we could have a conversation like that and then people are seeing it say, oh my God, it's the guy with the white cross. And that's such, so West London. It was just like amazing. Yeah. Uh, and I and I love in 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 Mangrove you can see Grenfell being built built in the background. Yeah, yeah. And exactly. uh, and I guess I, I use the word archive just as a way of kind of talking about not yeah like as you said not not feeling like you have to represent but just you know if if those stories aren't told they they get forgotten and so just being able to record the specificity of a moment. Um, you know we all watched Lovers Rock and all projected that version of that house party onto our you know in into it and um and it and it was the specificity of of how it unfolds that that i think really resonated with people yeah but not the, not so much the specifics of the of the details itself like it wasn't meant to be rep, be representative of everybody's house party but you've all been to a party like that where the mood and the feeling was that it was the soul of the party that we were trying to get across not the, the specific details you know and i think that's that's really important and that's all you can do with fiction really right you can try and get to the emotion or heart of the thing you know, um, and then you try, you get, you put in as many details as possible, you know, but you also, um, you know, you can't, you can't be trying to speak to everybody's experience, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, I, I, what I, um, what I really love, what I really loved about it was this, this idea of um, that house party becoming a citadel for, um for so many people because uh, and, and you know in the way that i think watching it in lockdown so far away from my own family it made me yearn for the citadel of our own house parties and obviously these films came on um around you know diwali and you know I, i'm sitting there watching them and you know yearning for something that just in that moment felt so far away but you know just 
filled me with so much nostalgia for for a really beautiful thing. Um, I think all of the films are about that. Just just quickly, all of the films are about that, about that connection. I mean, Lovers Rock is 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 is, is uh, really focused and it's really like. Uh, not obvious, but it's concentrated in that sense, you know, because it's in this house party. But, you know, Mangrove is about the community coming together. Leroy Logan, I feel like he cares so much about the community, you know what I mean? That he's willing to you know, risk everything and, and take the, the slings and arrows and stuff and then returns back to the community represented by his father at the end, you know? Uh, Alex Wheatle finds who he is from the community, you know? When not, not in the home, you know what I mean? He goes into the community and that's what saves him, is being back in Brixton, you know? Everyone embraces him and looks after him and says hey listen i got you i understand your pain you know like, or i can't understand your pain but i'm gonna i'm gonna commiserate with you you know um you know education is the same the community comes together to raise this boy up you know um it's all about community quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. What kind of a dad are you? <laughs> tone is tone, tone like... everything with that. Like, what kind of daddy? Yeah, yeah. No. Kind of, it's it more, more of a curious question because because no, I, you know you know over the years people have spoken so warmly about what you are as a teacher and 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 as a mentor and, and all the rest of it. I'm just I'm just wondering like how that then <laughs> translate into the home space when. Um, your goofy, you your, your, goofy, your goofy dad as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'd have to ask my son that, and you'd have to ask my daughter that. He'll, they'll probably tell you their own version. I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm quite. I'm, I'm a firm dad. I think. I think I am a firm dad. Uh, I try not to go over the top. I was talking to someone else about this, you know, uh, you know, straddling the line between being really, really firm and believing in discipline and stuff, and especially with my son because he's the oldest, and um, not going too far and also being there for him and her and just being able to hug them and cuddle them and say listen you know like I, I love you no matter what you know um I think that's really really important and and I'm still 
negotiating that. So I think I'm, I'm firm. Uh, I like to think I'm caring. I like to think I'm, I'm willing to listen uh, to them. If there's one thing that I think I'm not doing so well, I think he's being able to spend the amount of time with them that I think is necessary, both together and alone. I need to, I'm trying to do that more, uh, but it's difficult right now. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I think um, I just want to be, I do want to be a, you know, parents, especially Caribbean parents, ah, I'm your father, not your friend, you know, I do want to be a friend to my kids, you know, I do want them to be able to talk to me. Um, I don't know if that makes sense to you or resonates to you. Yeah, no, no, it, it really does. Because I, I guess, I, you know, when I was growing up, my, my dad was very much the silent authoritarian in the corner. I knew I was in t- trouble when he was, he had to get involved. And, um, you know, in that way that, you know, sometimes as parents, you try and go the, the opposite way to your parent, like the where where you feel like you didn't like how you were parented. You try and do the exact opposite, which doesn't always work. And so um, I, I, you know, like often from years of being a, a youth worker, um, where you know that the, the rule is start strict and relax as you go because you can't start you can't put your put your foot up on the, on the chair and like lean on it and say hey I'm just like you guys with with young people because that's the point at which you've lost all your authority in the room but you can start strict and go I am your youth worker and then as you go but you know bond with them but with my kids I feel like I'm too much the other way I'm too much like I want to be their friend I want to laugh with them and make them laugh and tell them jokes and then when I have to initiate discipline protocols that's the moment when they're like hold on a minute we were laughing a second ago yeah. I don't get yeah, this yeah. at all yeah. On? <laughs> yeah I get a little bit of that I think but but I think you know there's got to be you've got to have boundaries right I think kids have got to have boundaries without boundaries you know uh, then, then I think they yearn for boundaries as well and I remember I was doing a residency at UWE in Trinidad and I was away for a month and uh it was all right for the first couple of weeks or so. And then in the last couple of weeks, my son was calling me and we were Skyping and he said to me, listen, that's enough now. You've got to come back. <laughs> come back now. And he said, um, I even miss you telling me off. <laughs> I just want you to be here to tell me off. I was like, wow, that's like, so I, I felt like, all right, I am doing something right. You know what I mean? Because it's not so bad that he'd be like, oh, I, I'm so glad he's not telling me off, you know? So I think, I think they, they want, to be disciplined in a way but then you have to be able to give them the other side of it afterwards which is okay that's done now now we can sit down and watch Mandalorian together and we can I can put my arm around you and I have to give them like I don't want to ever feel like I can't uh show my son affection in that way you know I mean I can't hug him or you know put my arm around him or hold hands with him or sometimes he wants to hold my hand you know it's cool I don't I'm not going to be like I can't walk down the road holding hands with you because people are around or whatever you know none of that how, how old is your son at the moment he's 12 so he's sort of so, heading so. into teenage years and very much so has been since he was about eight <laughs> and and do, do you think do you think often about what it is to raise a boy in in this time and especially a boy who's about to become a teenager and you know take you know i guess take up space in a way that they don't always understand or or are aware of and, and and but you know and at the same time ensure that they're kind of um I, I'm not articulating myself very well I've got two daughters so it's it's just something I think about a lot how how do how can I as as a man as a, as a father ensure that I'm raising my two daughters to kind of be boundless but at the same time aware of how the world is 
yeah, it's difficult. It's really difficult because, yeah, yeah, I worry about it all the time, to be honest with you, you know what I mean? Because, like, on top of everything else, I grew up in the world that I grew up in. So it's not just, like, being a man and being a boy, but I think I grew up in quite a quite a stark environment and um again not because of what was going on inside my home but what was going on outside my home and um and it was tough it was very very tough when I look back on how tough it was I'm just like whoa you know and I look at my boy now and I say he's 12 now and when I was 12 this is what was going on you know and and not even I'm not even just saying just me individually just in the world in general and what my mates were going through and stuff like I had a kind of like balanced kind of upbringing in, the, in that sense it wasn't so bad and then there's other people who are having it really really hard you know and just to know that that exists out there in the world was 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 crazy and also I grew up really really super fast because it was the 80s and kids were just raised different you know <laughs> like we were privy to a lot of stuff that the kids now are not privy to and we were out there and out and about and I'd go riding about on my bike on a Sunday for hours I'd just be seeing stuff it's going on on roads you know what I mean so it was um i'm very very aware of what's out there in some ways that makes it worse that's a, but that's a really interesting distinction that you made made uh, just i just wonder if we can we can go back to that where in the 80s you know, you know I, I grew up in like like late 90s and 80s as well a little bit but um you know we we were in the world whereas now kids have access to the world through you know through like the inf- like the internet and, and and stuff but that doesn't necessarily put them in the world it just kind of gives them a veneer of what the world could be like um and i think that's really interesting to be able to actually see stuff for yourself out happening in real time and what that what that can do for you versus like stumbling upon a youtube video that you shouldn't be watching because it kind of auto plays after your baby shark or <laughs> whatever it is yeah yeah exactly yeah, for sure. But like in, in the same ways, you know, people are talking about this. Oh, oh don't let your kids have access to the Internet and you know, because of what they might see. And I, I agree wholeheartedly. But but no one was saying don't <laughs> let your kids go out and play because of what they might see. And that's what was happening. It was in some ways it was worse than seeing it on a screen because like I was actually seeing it happen. I mean, you know, there's a lot of violence, a lot of you know, just stuff going on. You're like and sometimes it was be happening to you so or around you or about to happen to you you know having to get away from people who are trying to do things to you and stuff you know so you know all the stuff that i always say to people people that used to be like when i wrote the scholar they were like oh you know i tell them about stuff that happened to me in my childhood and they'd look shocked and then they'd, they'd say i said but i wrote the scholar and they'd say <laughs> no i thought you were making that up and i was like no <laughs> i wasn't making that up <laughs> so yeah, and yeah, you know, and so just bringing it back to you know my boy. Yeah, I, 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 like I said, I worry about the fact that that world is out there, and there's a the thing about being a boy of color as well, particularly being a black boy, where you're really, really cute when you're a kid, and then when you hit that thirteen thing, it all changes, and the world, even though you're still a kid, treats you like a man. And and with all the fear and uh, the, the the kind of um, presumptions that come with that for a black man, and that's scary to me. And on all sides, not just from you know, not for just from uh, people who are not from your race and culture, but also people within your race and culture too. And 
I guess one one of the things that crops up uh, a lot in in the book that I've 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 written about parenting and 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 about kind of preparing our kids for the bleakness of the of the world is I guess that for me there's always a tension between uh, projecting my cynicism and my and my jadedness based on stuff that I've experienced onto them versus what it's actually going to be like for them versus ensuring that they just see the world through their own right they project their own vision of the world onto it and and that's something that I've I struggle with daily I guess that's part of why I'm doing this podcast because I get to talk to amazing people and kind of get their insight into this because like this is the thing they never tell you about parenting is like we're all kind of just feeling our way through this yeah totally um I mean just to, to you know it's a really good point that you raise and just to, to kind of contextualize where I'm at with that um I was brought up in West London until I was about three. I was born in West London, brought up in West London until I was about three. Then my mum and dad moved and they moved to Uxbridge, uh, where I was one of two or three black families in the area. Uh, the only black kid in my school was a guy that was so much older than me. Um, I won't say his name, but uh, yeah, he's so much older than me. And and so I was the, literally the only black kid in my school, the only black kid in my area. Uh, there was a, this other family that we were good friends with, but they, they were kind of outside of Uxbridge and they moved in later and I'd already moved out by then. I, my mum and dad split up and my mum moved out of Uxbridge when I was about seven or eight. And we moved back to Shepherd's Bush, uh, back to White City. Gosh, I, I, you can never say those two things like they're the same place to anyone in West London. So sorry about that. But yeah, I moved back to, you know, like being living by the A40 Westway at that point in time. And, uh, and I lived there, you know, in West London up until very, you know, I was like late 20s or something. So, so I grew up in a very, very hostile majority white environment where uh, women would try and fight my mum outside the school gates they tried to make me draw my mum pink when I was in nursery school you know and, I, and then when I refused to they shouted at me and you know all this stuff and um regular racism from the, my friends in the school all sorts of stuff it was just really intense and I grew up a lot of the time as a kid uh just being really upset and depressed and I didn't know I was upset and depressed and wanting to be white um I, I make no bones about that that was the experience um I didn't know I was doing that but I would you know put my sweatshirt on top of my head and pretend I had long hair and stuff like that you know so luckily my mum moved me out and moved me back she's really worried about my mental state at that time so she moved me back to a, uh, an environment where there were lots of black people and it's funny because that's that story is like Derek Awusu's story is very similar to that. Alex Wheaton's story is very similar to that. And I think that what's going on with that? How come all three of us ended up in this space now talking about stuff, you know? How we became writers. Interesting. My wife had a similar upbringing in uh, East London, in majority white environment, lots and lots of racism. So we kind of had a discussion about this in terms of raising our kids. And we said that we're not... We don't want them to have to think about race and racism as kids. We want them just to be kids. You know what I mean? Because I've had to think about it a lot. And, and it's one of those things that, that, that made me older than I should have been. You know, like seeing someone come to fight your mum and calling her all sorts of like racial expertise. You know, it's like you're going to get older from that, you know, like no matter what happens. So, um, 
yeah, with our kids, we try to just like let them be kids. Actually, that's the, the primary thing, and also uh, stimulate their sense of cultural well-being and belonging. That's kind of our our, our plan, and, and that's and, that, and that's really wonderful because that kind of prepares them early on for being proud of who they are and where they've come from um because you know they're because they are you know they're they're black and they're they're also south asian uh mixed race and um one 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 of the things that um is really interesting about raising you know raising mixed race kids for for me for you know for, for from what i've seen is like when you're in the majority default or or you know what is currently the default environment it's so it, it becomes so much harder to kind of raise your kids with um with that sense of heritage and culture so especially when you know half the family in, in my case it is is white so you know that that's their default for them so it kind of has to become my thing and my worry was always that you know that those bits would just be the stuff that they do with dad 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 and his family rather than it's something that we all engage in and you know my wife's been really good at ensuring that she gets she you know she gets her involved in all the the cultural stuff and um and how how has that been for you guys balancing that i mean it's a state of experimentation all the time you know but what we said uh very early on was that we both have to get involved with everything uh so so we, we we can't say that this is what dad does and this is what uh mum does um <laughs> i mean they asked some interesting questions man my daughter asked me the other day like uh why why mummy didn't marry someone indian <laughs> and i was just like wow that's a big question for a five-year-old like, okay let me see if i can tackle this now you know and so you know, but what we've done, I suppose, is that, you know, we, we, we kind of make sure both cultures are given equal prominence in the home, in the things we talk about. Uh, you know, she'll see, uh, you know, my wife's side of the family uh, come here and engage with us in our in the things that we do. And then we go over and we engage in things that, that, that they do. And it's like, so we try and make it as seamless as possible. We also make sure they have a connection to uh, Africa. Make sure they have a connection because you know my wife's you know family is from Africa as well. So as as well as it being my heritage, of course. So you know, Africa uh, we engage in a lot. We go back to the Caribbean. We go to India as well. You know, we try and make it just normalize. This is who you are. You are not half of anything. You are whole of both things. You know what I mean? So this makes up who you are. Yeah, I really love that. Um... I th- and it and it is so important because I think, I think ultimately you know kids will kids will or like as kids become teenagers and teenagers become become adults they will forge their own identities for themselves. My worry is always ensuring that they don't have an absence of something with in with which to then try and forge their their identity as they as they become adults around that absence. You know. Yeah, it's the absence that, 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 that is the issue, I think. And that what, what I see is causing an issue in people. 
when I when people tend to have less problems from what I've seen is when they feel connected, they feel that connection. So even little things like being able to know what to eat and know what things are, you know, I want them to feel comfortable. I was like, it's a bit of a joke in our family, but I, yeah, it's not a joke in the sense. I want them to be able to go into the Caribbean takeaway and know what to order. You know what I mean? I don't want them to be asking anyone, what's that, what's that, what's that? And, and it's making light of the thing, but it goes for everything. I want them to be very, very comfortable with all sides of their heritage but also you know what my son's learning about islam right now i want him to know about that too you know what i mean there's no one that i know of in my family i'm sure there are people in my family who are muslim but um it's part of the world man <laughs> it's part of what's going on it's part of the world that you live in and you should know as much about that as possible i'm really glad the school is doing that and um I'm trying to tell him as much about that as possible. And he, there's a Quran here for when he's ready. You know what I mean? So I want him to have a knowledge of world cultures because that will make you a richer person too. I wonder if part of that is because you are, because to be, I think to be a good writer is to be curious about the world. You know, to, to be a writer is to kind of go, well, I don't know how airplane engines work. I might just read that Wikipedia page. I might understand like 20% of it, but it might spin something out you know you know in the same way that like knowing what different you know what different religions are knowing what the different cultures are like you know that that curiosity feeds me so much and 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 i think i think one of the best one of the best things to be as a child is to be curious and and i i i don't necessarily feel like my parents gave me the space to be curious so i kind of had to look out for stuff like find stuff out by myself and that's kind of where a library came into my life at the right time right but were, were exactly. you were you quite a curious child oh completely and i i, I tried because i was told oh i saw people talking about how people lost their curiosity becoming an adult so i always tried to hold on to it and i think yeah you know we can't be a great writer i think or even a good writer halfway decent writer without being curious you know so i i, I try and encourage that funnily enough uh, and I talk about my I'm talking about my boy a lot just because he's he's engaging with the world in a different way from my daughter who's five. So I'm sorry if it feels like I'm like dom you know he's dominating the conversation, but I'm finding it interesting where he's going in terms of his learning. Well, he's he's, I mean, he's forging something now, whereas your daughter he's forging yeah. something right now. My daughter is a, is a is an open sponge. She's curious about everything. It just like it just comes flooding in, and she's trying things out, and she's at that stage. My son started off that way. But but I think, and this is, I'm not blaming the education system, but in a sense, just that whole thing of like going to school and being able to do enough to pass a test or answer questions or being in a room where someone else will answer the question has dulled that a little curiosity a little bit. So when we were talking about Islam like yesterday or something like that, I said to him, we just bought him a robot, we bought him a Cosmo robot. Uh, for his birthday the whole the family did we all pulled together to, to buy him this one present because it's very expensive and um i was talking to him about a guy called al jazari who 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 he was the you know the, the father of robotics when he came out of islam you know what i mean he was doing he's making like clockwork robots and stuff that serve water and could do all these amazing things way before robotics was invented in europe and my son was like i don't need to know about that kind of stuff you know <laughs> kind of what how can you be saying that you know and uh it's because he was be he said it's nothing to do with what they're teaching that's something else that's something different it's like encouraging i had to re-encourage him again about the beauty of curiosity you know what i mean and I'm, saying, I'm telling you this story because it's about the world and you need to know what's going on in the world and that's 
you might be able to use that one day because you're into robots. How can you not want to know that? You know, so it's it's almost it's almost like being interested in stuff gets shamed out of you as you become a teenager. Yeah, exactly. and like I can remember that. I can remember feeling like suddenly I wanted to replace all those encyclopedias with, with like football paraphernalia. But like, why I actually wanted to be reading was comics, you know. But you know, we, this was this was the eighties and nineties, and comics weren't, you know, superheroes were not the did not have the cultural impact that they do now. Um, but you know that that idea of like ensuring that kids remain interested or you know teenagers remain interested in the world is so important. I think I you know that that's my that's why like you know whenever whenever my kid you know my kid's six now whenever she expresses even a minor interest in something we're like right let's get out the books let's look let's look it up let's just keep that going because she's just started school and and i want to and why while she still really enjoys going to school i want to retain that joy of learning because it's it's you know it's there for for me and for for my wife a lot but you know i don't want it to go from her yeah and it's not like i said it's not the school's fault it's just this idea of this is the way that you learn becomes the prescriptive way that you learn you know you just read books and you recite things back and then you've learned it you know and the idea that learning is never ending is what i want to put into his head and we're just about getting to the point where that's necessary now because he's now settled into that form of learning he's like okay this is the way that i can get by you know he's very good at school you know he does really well and even though we've been homeschooling since the whole lockdown and stuff you know he he continues to do well and he does have a sense of curiosity you know he's curious about a lot of things but i remember that too i remember where if something didn't hold my interest that's it i don't want to (laughs) know and um yeah and i think that was detrimental to my my growth and 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 you have to actively encourage them that all learning is good and necessary and will help you some way down the line. You know? yeah. I think we've talked a little bit about this, but I'd really love, I'd really love um, to kind of give it its own spotlight. What, you know, what are your, what is your big tip for raising kids to, to, to be joy, to have, be filled with joy and boundlessness when everything outside our front doors seems so bleak? Uh god free tips i think i think (laughs) i think you've got to retain a a sense of optimism you know there's that dave Chappelle sketch where it's like he's talking about donald trump he said imagine if you yeah (laughs) talk to your kids the way donald trump talks to the world and and says you know oh well actually it's really really terrible outside you know (laughs) it's really bad things are terrible you know of course you don't do that so to retain that sense of optimism when you're talking to them, you know, I think like allow them their childhood, you know, and this is not to say you kind of bury your head in the sand and you don't talk about things. Uh, you talk about things in, in, a, in a really constructive way. My mum had a saying, this is the second thing, by the way, my mum my had a saying when I was growing up, uh, which was, um, if you ask about it, you're ready to know. And so she never ever if i whatever i asked her about whether it was to do with sex or anything if i like if i asked about you might get an abbreviated version (laughs) you might not get everything but she would never say you're too young to know about that you might be too young to do that yeah maybe you're not too young to know about that so we'll have that conversation i carry that forward into my parenting as well i thought that's really cool that my mum did that for me uh 
and I suppose uh, and the third thing is don't be afraid to be their parent I think I see a lot of people who are afraid to give them the discipline to be like because oh my kid might hate me and, and you know I, I, I just don't think that's true as long as you're like you know you've got both sides of the coin you show them that love afterwards uh you give it some time but show them that love afterwards they will understand why you did the other stuff they will get to a point where they look back and you say oh I get it I get it with my mom I get it with my dad I understand uh so and I'm, I'm grateful to them for the, the discipline that they showed me so yeah <laughs> Coach Newland, cool. thank you so much Thank you, Ro. Nice one. Thank you so much to Courtier Newland for joining me on the Brown Baby podcast. What a great guest. What a great chat. And just a reminder that his book, A River Called Time, is out now on Canongate. And it's incredible. Uh, also, Brown Baby, my memoir, is out as well. Please pick them both up. Pick them both up. Buy them. Please, please, please. This was free. Uh, Join me next week for another installment of the Brown Baby podcast. Uh, another great interview coming up. Uh, subscribe, leave comments, tell your friends to subscribe. Big us up on social media if you want. And also have a great week. And see you next week. Thank you to my publishers Bluebird and to Acast for supporting this podcast. And to Courtier and to you. All of you. Unless you're my enemy and you hate listening to this. If that's you and you're my enemy and you are hate listening to this. I've just got one question for you. Who has the time, bro? There's so much good stuff on the internet. Allow me. What about the what about the rest of all the stuff? Why are you wasting your time with me? We only have limited time on this earth. And but you know what? The rest of you, I love you very dearly. Goodbye everyone. Bye-bye. Brown baby, I am brown baby. Yes, I am, I am. Silly brown baby. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.